Yo, I'm Damien Roos. Today, smooth legs, bikepacking, and rider etiquette. You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your cycling question answer. Before we get started today, I just want to let you know that I have a YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and type semi-pro cycling, you will get videos that are different to just questions and answers. There are how-to videos. There are rides that I've done. There's some information stuff and also behind the scenes of semi-pro cycling, the coaching business and content machine. If you're interested in this, like I said, just go to YouTube and search for semi-pro cycling. But now, let's get on with the show and question one. I'm contemplating the pros, cons of shaving and waxing versus natural in regards to ingrown hairs, comfort, etc. Thoughts and experiences. Well, I'm a shaver. I will never change as well. I did try waxing, so I have something to compare it to, but I got through two strips and then they put the third one on me and I couldn't do it anymore so I ran around the shop until they caught me and ripped it off and I've got to say never again there are also other reasons not to go with waxing you will have to wait until the hair is long enough before you can get a good grip to tear it out so there is a period of fuzz there and this is hard to control if you have an important race or whatever coming up and you need to be smooth for it then it's hard to get that perfect where shaving you can just do at any time time. I don't know whether ingrowns are worse with waxing or shaving because it's a really personal thing whether you will get ingrowns or not. I do know that I get them but mostly on my upper legs thus the modus operandi of the hairy boxer which I imagine is the case for most semi-pros compared to the pros because who has time to shave all the way up? Ain't nobody got time for that! From my experience, I say just stick to the standards. Shave just past the tan line and then... If you have time, do a number zero with the clippers on the rest. Some people may do clippers all the way as well with kind of helps, but I will shave up until just past the tan line and then I'll do clippers with the number zero on the rest. It definitely helps with ingrowns and my love life. And I'm not sure what you mean by natural because if you mean not shaving at all, I would only do that if your legs are covered. Even then, you can get hairs poking out of your leg warmers. Shaving is the only option you have. Yes, Sagan didn't do it until he did it. He can't even escape it. Another experience which I think will be interesting to you is people's motivation to shave. Here's a test to check your motivation. You may get into a situation where you haven't shaved before a ride and you want to save yourself some embarrassment by doing a quick trim. If you only had time to shave one part of your leg, where would you shave? Would you shave the bottom, the top? Where would you shave? Personally, I would start at the bottom and shave up. So if I have knee warmers on, I'd shave up to the knee warmers. Or I would probably just do my calves because that's the main area, but the front as well. But in total contrast, a buddy of mine turned up to a ride one day with shaved quads down to the knees or so. Why? Because he wanted to look down and see shaved legs. So that instantly pointed out that I shave for others, mostly, and he shaves for himself, which is pretty interesting, huh? Question two, keeping pace with strangers. This is a long one. Strap in. Yesterday, I went for a ride at a trail that's home to a seven-mile loop. I went with my girlfriend who has a single-speed road bike. I can overtake her easily, and she is okay with me riding ahead of her. We rode about 18 miles. Then I decided to close out the ride by pushing. I started going, 
and there was a stranger stopped on the side of the trail with his bike. I slowed down and gave him a thumbs up, making sure he was okay, and he nodded. A few moments later, he overtakes me. I was compelled to chase after him. I started moving at his pace and stay a little bit behind him, whatever he did. I've never had a chance to ride with someone else who has experience. I was worried I was being presumptuous by tailing him, but it was too exhilarating keeping up with him. I kept a safe distance and pursued him for a few miles. We were probably averaging 20 miles per hour on the flat against a light wind. At the end of the loop, we apparently both decided it was time to go back to the cars. And during this time, he slowed and got to the side of me and said, what's up? We introduced, talked, went our ways. Probably the best experience in my cycling career so far. So... Has anyone else decided to just give chase to another set of riders they have never met? Well, this is common, and I'll be a little presumptuous in my answer as well. I think the faster you are, the more you don't like it. If you're fast, you most likely save your efforts when it counts, which is not generally on a bike path or just cruising around somewhere. So having someone sit on your wheel and challenge you really is just plain annoying. Sometimes ego takes over and they will try and drop whoever sits on their wheel. I know I've ruined many a recovery ride by letting my ego take over. Some people may not mind though, but at a minimum, let the rider know you're there. Because this is the funny thing. I'm not sure if someone did tell me they were on the wheel that I'd outright tell them to get off my wheel. I would probably let them stay there if they announced their presence. I might even let them take turns at the front to share the load, especially if it's a windy day. You know what is better than this, though? A group ride or racing. If you're serious, you save it for when it counts, and that's what racing is for. Some groups may have hard parts, but you will notice none of the top riders really giving it everything. They are all likely saving themselves, or they're spent from their own training. So overall, it sounds like you want to go racing, or at least get some mates together and go hard together. Look up rides on your local cycling club's website, or ask a local shop where rides are, and that will get you started. Question three, it's another etiquette question, runner, cyclist, etiquette. Cyclist and runner traveling in different directions on the shoulder of a busy highway. Who gets the narrow asphalt shoulder? There aren't many runners or cyclists in my city, and there are no sidewalks or bike paths. The highway is 55 miles per hour. The shoulder is six inches or less. I'm curious if I encounter a cyclist, should they take the grass or should I be taking the grass? Vehicles often give no space to do anything other than take the grass. There have been times that similar situations have occurred when I was running, there was no shoulder at all and the cyclist maintained his position on the highway and I had to step aside and take the ditch with both the cyclist and vehicle oncoming. Sometimes I'm on the bike and I encounter a walker and would like to know the appropriate measure to take in this instance as well. Trails usually have rules posted, but I'm not so sure about highways with 55 mile an hour speed limits with six inch shoulders. My understanding is that bikers yield to runners and walkers and runners yield to walkers. Please don't respond that neither of us should be on a busy road because it is unlikely that either of us will stop running or cycling in this area. In my mind, there's two areas at play here. There's natural selection and then there is etiquette. Natural selection is going to play out in places on earth where there is no etiquette. And this is basically just survival. In the case of being on a road, there is a clear hierarchy and it's the more damage that you can do when hitting someone, the more rights you take for yourself. It's that simple. Cyclists are higher up the hierarchy than runners, so cyclists take the preferred spot on the road. 
You soon figure this out when you're in a place that you don't get any respect from someone that's on something faster and heavier and is going to hurt you when they hit you. You soon get out of the way. When etiquette comes into play, though, I'd say the opposite is true because in this situation, a bike is legally allowed to ride on the road in most places, and that's where it should be, not on the shoulder. Maybe it's narrow, there's no room, but technically they can be there. It's a bit sketchy, but that's the way it is sometimes. So they should risk their life by riding on the road and letting runners through on the shoulder. It'd be a bit tricky if there is not room for a car, a bike, and a runner. Someone has to lose. And generally, if that is just going to happen, then it is going to be the runner or the walker, whoever is the one that's traveling the slowest and is the weakest, most exposed person that can get damaged, because that's basically how nature works. Question four, I'll be graduating college in December and then have time for adventure beginning in April. I've read blogs and talked to veteran cyclist friends, but I still have a few questions, which is actually... Six, five questions. So I'm going to answer them in context. I think it's a bit easier. I will say I am green in this area, but I am interested in the answers as this is something that I'm looking for because I want to do some future trips like this. So let's see. Number one, what is a realistic average speed miles per day trip duration? I'm 22, fairly athletic, in good shape, and I ride a decent quality road bike. Average speed, I'd say at max, you're looking at 11 miles per hour, 18 kilometers per hour, 7 to 11 hours on the bike, covering 77 to 111 miles, which is around 120 to 180 kilometers a day. Realistically, though, if it's your first time, don't aim for that because that is someone that knows what they're doing and can maintain that intensity, has that aerobic base to be able to handle that. So at a minimum, aim for something like 50 to 70 miles, which is 80 to 110 kilometers. Do it in 10 hours at 10 miles per hour or 16 kilometers an hour or somewhere in between. So they're your two edges, and you would want to find somewhere in between that. Number two, what kind of storage should I go with? Backpack, strapped to the rear rack, seat bag. I'm planning on cheap hotels and staying with friends when possible, not camping. So you're looking for storage for a non-camping trip. Keep in mind that any weight added to your bike will affect your handling and efficiency of the bike. So lightweight and streamlined packing is ideal. Also, keep your heavy items low and centered on the bike to reduce any negative effects on the handling. You want to lean on the bike packing side of things rather than touring. So no panniers or racks. You want to keep your load over the center line of the bike. And this is going to help you with handling and keep the bike predictable. In that case, then, there are four places to keep bags. The handlebar the top tube, the saddle or the seat, same thing, and the frame. What is going to dictate what you take is actually what you need to put in these bags or what you want to put into these bags. And like I said, you want the heaviest items low and the lighter items forward on the handlebars. So in handlebar bags, you want something like a lightweight sleeping bag, insulated jacket, a bivy sack, which is a sleeping bag cover that you can just use anywhere. It's a bit like a swag without a mattress. You won't need any of this, really. You may need a sleeping bag so you're flexible when you're sleeping at friends' places or whatever, but possibly not, especially if it's in a warmer climate. Maybe it's just a waste of space. You may need an insulated jacket depending on if it gets cold overnight or whatever. You could forego the handlebar bag altogether 
and just pack all of the clothing in a seat pack. A seat pack is like an enlarged saddle pack and they strap to the bottom of the seat and the seat post and then they sort of go backwards from there. There's a bunch of different options. Some of them now are coming out with their own rack system that will just simply clamp to the seat and the seat post and then the bag slides on and you put some straps around it. It makes things a little bit easier to get them on and off. But what you want to put in the seat pack is extra clothing. This is to maintain body warmth and dryness. You want rain gear, you want some normal clothes, some pants, some shirts, some socks, and also sandals, thongs, or shoes, or whatever you're going to be wearing once you get off the bike to chillax. Plus, everything that you need to prepare for your ride itself when you're on the bike. Arm warmers, knee warmers, rain jacket, beanie, gloves, whatever this is. That's what you're going to pack in there. So I'd say that's pretty essential when it comes to packing for bikepacking. A top tube bag, and a top tube bag is just one of the little bags that sits behind the stem on the top tube. It's more for things like your phone, some food that's easy to access, some tools and some spares, but don't go crazy. They are pretty small overall, so it's just the things that you need immediately. It's good if you can get one that has your phone on top if you're going to use that for navigation or whatever. But I would say this is pretty essential. At least it'll get stuff out of your pockets. And then the final one is a frame bag. And this is where you would put your heavy items because it sits in the lowest position on your bike. And you want to put most of your food in there. You want to put heavy tools in there and spares, pump, tire levers, your puncture repair kit, your multi-tool, and even your medical kit, which I do recommend carrying a medical kit of some sort. So that one is important because it carries very important things to get you out of emergency situations, whether they're medical or mechanical. I don't know if you necessarily need it though, whether you can fit in small bits of tools in other places like the top trip bag, your back pockets, and your seat back. It may not be 100% necessary. Number three is, what's your favorite replenishment bars and nutrition tips? So nutrition on the bike, you have to find food that has a high calorie to weight ratio. And I searched and searched and searched and found a great website that actually lists a whole bunch of different ones. These are US-centric, so I'm not sure whether they reach further than the US, probably not because they seem like they're independent producers at this stage, but it'll give you an idea of what's possible in calorie-dense food. First option, Boggs Trail Butter, 190 calories per 32 grams. Picky Bars, 200 calories per 40 grams. Lara Bars, 230 calories per 48 grams. Justin's Butter, 180 calories per 33 gram pouch. Pro Bar, 390 calories at 85 grams. You could even just get some almonds, 100 calories for 17 grams. Or any other type of flavored nuts or whatever are generally pretty good as well. I will say if you're going to be staying at hotels things, it seems like you're going to be in an urban area at some point. You're not going to be out in the wilderness the entire time. So you'll want to carry this. But then in between these, just have whole foods. Have really good whole food meals and you'll be right for fuel. You will want to do a bit of calculating as to exactly how much you'll be expending each day so you're not running a crazy deficit and by the end of the second or third day, you're really struggling. Overall, you can pack a whole bunch of food in and again, this is going to come back to how much food you need and then how much space you need on the bike for that food. 
for any safety tips, things to watch out for, I would say the top three are go early when there's not going to be as many people on the road. Use back roads when possible and be prepared for dogs and watch out and know how to handle dogs. The fifth one, add anything else you feel I should know would be appreciated. I've got a couple of things. The first one, I guess, is nutrition, but it's you want to figure out your best way to carry water. So whether that's biddens or you wear an actual camelback on your back and you have to figure out a way to filter and purify water if you're picking it up from a stream, for example. But basically, you just want to have a good think about how you're going to carry water, whether it's going to be like 750 milliliter biddens and a couple of those, or you do want to carry it in your back or whatever. It's vital that you get this stuff right. So you really want to have a good think about it. The second one is adjusting pressures. And it may seem obvious, but as soon as you add all this extra weight to your bike, your tire pressures need to be changed. They need to be adjusted for that extra weight. It's going to help your handling. It's going to stop getting pinch flats or damage to the rim when you hit a pothole or whatever. So make sure that you calculate the exact weight of your bike and then take that into consideration when you pump up your tires. All right, question five, romantic or pragmatist? I'm gradually increasing my distance, and today I rode my first 75 kilometers. As I was trying to remember my route and having my jersey pocket stuffed full of tools, tubes, and food, I realized I would have been better off and more comfortable with one of those top tube bags, the ones we were just talking about. The thing is, I just can't do it. It matters far too much to me on how the bike looks. Jersey pockets are meant to be stuffed. I realized I have a romantic view on riding, really, It should just be the rider and the bike crossing mile after mile. Trying to stay as close to that image probably comes at the expense or comfort and knowing where I'm going. What group do you fall into out of these two groups? Are you a traditionalist following the unwritten rules of cycling or a complete pragmatist who will adopt anything that helps? Me, personally, I'm a traditionalist for some parts of cycling and a pragmatist for others. So what are my traditionalists on? Clothing. Only clothing that you've earned, clothing that you've bought, nothing that says you represented something when you didn't. So you have to be truthful with your clothing. It doesn't matter what color, anything, as long as it is yours and you can honor that Also, the order in which you buy things and ride with certain groups. So working your way up from the bottoms of the top, for me, starts with equipment and skill and talent. And you need to just gradually, progressively earn your way to have better equipment and be able to ride in certain rides and races. And also, no top tube bags like this dude. I don't even have a saddlebag, but I actually want to get one. I would only use a top tube bag if I was doing some bike packing. Outside of that, there is no chance in hell you'll see my bike with anything funky on it, including mirrors, reflectors, maybe a hidden bell because it's law in some places now. But that's about it. There is no way that I'm putting anything on my bike that goes against the nature of the bike. But then... When I get to the pragmatist list, I'll do things for performance. I would shave my armpits if it gave me some performance benefit and I needed that performance benefit. I would do pretty much whatever it takes for a bit of added performance. Of course, I'm not crazy to run a disc wheel on a group ride, for example, but I will think about the performance and then that will take precedence over the looks in that case. Outside of that, sometimes I'll go against traditional colors just because I want things to match in a certain way. 
It's a pretty interesting question, though. How do you sit on that spectrum from tradition to practical? Have you found that it's changed over the time that you've ridden? I think when you start, maybe you have one idea of what cycling is and you go to another. I see lots of people going through the cycle of being practical and then moving into tradition once they get deeper into the sport. And I see people going the other way. They start with tradition and then they just move to practical once they get older and their back gets sore so they have to go upright and they're not slamming their stem or whatever. It's a really interesting way to think about it. And you can spot the people either side. And generally you'll see young cats riding with tradition, which is kind of cool. And generally you'll see older cats riding with upright bikes in really crazy positions that you would never consider when you're younger. Anyway, though, I'm rambling. That's the end of the show. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much for checking out the YouTube channel by searching Semi-Pro Cycling. (laughs) 